Good morning. Let's give all of those preschool workers a hand. <laughs> you think your job was tough, Todd. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Jesus came to change the world. He didn't come so we could have Christmas. We have Christmas because he came. And what a difference his coming has made. And what a difference he's still making in so many of us. Around the world. Ken Eidelman, your senior pastor, who in his typical clear and bold preaching and teaching ways a few years ago at Wabash Valley Correctional Center when several of us were leading a Kairos retreat for about 40 inmates, he reminded us all that the Bible is about someone. The Bible is about a person. The Bible is about a human being. In fact, he said the Old Testament is about someone who is coming. The New Testament Gospels is about someone who came. And the rest of the New Testament from Acts to Revelation is about someone who's coming again. And he is so right. It's so much about someone, a human being, who came to this earth. And whether Jesus was in the flesh or whether he was creating the world, Jesus was comfortable in his own skin. Look in John chapter 1. If you have a Bible or in any form, just go ahead and open it up. We'll stay in John most of the morning. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we get a glimpse of Jesus in the beginning. We get a glimpse of Jesus as He is entering into the world. Look at these verses. I won't spend but about three minutes on this. I have a professor friend who spent six months just on these 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. He was comfortable as Creator. He had created the world. But look, beginning in verse 10, He was in the world. And though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of God. Those who believed that he was God in the flesh and those who believed that and recognized that, he gave them the right, the power, the privilege, the authority to become sons, children of God. When he summed it up, beginning in verse 14, the writer John said, just simply the Word became flesh. And He made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Mo Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want you to hang on to that phrase, grace and truth. 
that best describes who Jesus was as God or who Jesus was as man better than any phrase I know of in Scripture. Jesus full of grace and truth. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. Max Lucado helped us to see Jesus in his humanity in a book called God Came Near, written 25 years ago. In that, Max makes this statement about Jesus. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. He got tired. And his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It is much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat from his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. It all happened in a moment. In one moment, a most remarkable moment, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I don't know about you, but it, when I finally grasped that Jesus wasn't just a person of history who's, who spent some time in a certain geographical area and had all of these customs and things surrounded him, which is what my Bible college teacher taught when he taught me the life of Christ. There was nothing about Jesus as a human being. It was all about those peripheral things and facts. And so to think of him in human terms is almost, it does almost seem irreverent. To think about him being a little baby to poor peasant parents who didn't have the luxury of fine linens. They probably had to wipe his little bitty behind with something like burlap, if that. When he played in the streets in Nazareth, he played the pickup games that all the little children play, that poor children play, maybe with a ball that was made out of rags. If he, wasn't, if he weren't competitive and understood what it means to, to, to not play up to par, or if he understand, doesn't understand what it means to be so prideful after we played above par, he doesn't understand me. But the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that we do not have 
a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who is tempted in all points as we are. If he was never tempted to look at the opposite sex as a sex object, then he doesn't know what the struggles so many of us face. If he doesn't know what it's like, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Whatever you struggle with, Jesus understands because he became flesh. And he lived his life out in life like we do. He understands. And I'm glad to know that he does. I'm glad to know that I don't have to live a life of pretense. I'm glad to know that he knows exactly what I'm struggling with. And he still embraces me. He still gives me the right, the power to become children of God. In John chapter 2, we find Mary at a wedding. She went to a wedding because she was invited. And then it, it says that Jesus got invited. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding also. In verse 11, it's going to tell us that there at the wedding, Jesus was able to show his first signs of glory when he changed the water into wine. His first divine act is recorded there. Why was he there? Why did it happen at a wedding? Because the human Jesus, the man Jesus, the young man Jesus was liked so much that you would have invited him to your wedding. He was special. You wanted him around. He carried himself in such a way that you just liked his presence and you wanted him at the most meaningful event in your life up until that point. Jesus was liked. I've not always been a part of a really good church. I've been a part of good churches that were trying to become Christ-like. You're very fortunate to be a part of Crossroads. There is a staff here, there's senior leadership that really tries to help us to be the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. I've been in church planning situations where we didn't have anything to invite people to. No building, no choir, no programs. And Susan and I learned that you can invite people to Jesus no matter what. Because if they catch a glimpse of Jesus, it can radically change their lives. So we started with our middle class friends in Brazil one time in the mid-80s. We started a class on Sunday nights. They didn't know it was a class. They came to a social event and then we told them we were going to read through the Gospel of Mark. About the fourth or fifth or sixth chapter into the gospel of Mark we were doing a, a, a chapter a week one of the couples in that group that we had met at the beach camping out on the beach and we happened to live in the same city and, and we became friends and we invited them they came Paul was worked for the telephone company he was studying to be a lawyer he now is a lawyer his wife Nildy was a very good-looking, vivacious, outgoing woman. Her father was a Scientologist. Everybody was unchurched. 
about the fourth or fifth or sixth chapter into the Gospel of Mark about looking at the life of Jesus, that person who came and dwelt among us and who was full of grace and truth, she began to see Jesus in His humanity. And one night in our living room, she started easing up on the edge of the couch. And at some point, she couldn't contain herself. And she just jumped off of her seat right in the middle of all of us, thrust her hands up into the air and said, what a fantastic man Jesus was. A lesson had been made that night. She was so captivated by Jesus and the way he carried himself. Sometime later, a few months later, we decided after we had finished the Gospel of Mark, the group decided to stay together. We were trying to decide what to study, and they said they wanted to study about the marital relationship. We were all probably in our 30s. We all had small children. We all were struggling with careers and, and direction and marriage. They wanted to study marriage. So we started in Genesis and we studied those scriptures about God instituting marriage and we studied Jesus' teachings on marriage. And finally we got to Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul says there in verse 21 of chapter 5, be in submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. A mutual submission that sometimes people overlook. And then the next verse says, Wives, be in submission to your husbands. And at that point, before we could read any further, Paulo interrupted and he pointed his finger at Nelri and he said, See there, I told you it was in there. And you have never been submissive to me. You've never listened to a thing I said. Paulo was a self-acclaimed agnostic. He was hoping Jesus, that Paul in that passage was right. Nelly looked at me like, okay, Koi, it's in there. What do I do? And I said, well, let's just keep reading. <laughs> that wasn't a punchline, by the way. Because <laughs> that's what we did. We just simply read and we asked a question, what is said, why was it said, so what difference does that make? We read through the whole Gospel of Mark with those three questions in mind. We were reading through the passages on marriage with those three questions in mind. So I said, let's just keep reading. And it says, wives, be in submission to your husbands as to the Lord. And then it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Presenting her holy and without spot or wrinkle. She got it. She remembered Jesus. And she looked back at Paul across the room and she said these words. Paul, if you will learn to treat me like that man Jesus treated people, I will be all over you with submission. 
If we're having problems in our relationships, it's because probably we aren't submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and in the way that Christ did. Yeah. Jesus was quite a man, quite a human being. He showed us how to live. Probably the passage that is most, in my mind, depictive of Jesus being full of grace and truth is that passage of Scripture in John chapter 8, if you want to turn over to there. It's a passage that almost didn't make it into the canon, the Scriptures. It's a passage that they knew was authentic, but they didn't know where to put it. In fact, some older manuscripts didn't even have it. Some other ones had it at the end because they had so much respect for it. It's probably some of those passages that is referred to at the end of John that says that if all the things that, were, that Jesus taught and did were written, that the whole world wouldn't contain the books of the things that he did and said. It's authentic. It's there. They just don't know where to put it. But it's about that incident where the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers and experts in the law were trying to trap Jesus. They didn't like the way he taught. They didn't like the way he carried himself. It was a slap in their legalistic face. And they were trying to trap him. So they took a woman that they had caught in the very act of adultery. They brought her put her in the front of Jesus as he was in the temple courts as he had sat down to teach. And they said, Moses tells us to stone such people. What do you say? And Jesus, not acting like me, but acting full of grace and truth, stooped down and began to ride on the ground. Now our typical reaction, if it had been me, if I'd have been in the flesh... There in that situation, I'd have been after somebody who was trying to trap me. I'd have been in their face. If somebody who knew better, brought up religiously, knew better, and had been caught in the very act of adultery and had been doing it in such a way that the whole community would know about it, I'd have been in their face. You know better than that. You were taught better than that. Why were you doing that? How did they catch you to start with? But Jesus stooped down and began to ride on the ground. The scribes and the Pharisees continued to badger him with questions until finally he stood up and he looked at them and he says, To you who are without sin, if any one of you are without sin, Go ahead and cast the stone. Jesus could have cast the stone. Hebrews 4 said he was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet was without sin. He didn't. So the scripture says he knelt back down and began to write on the ground again. People have surmised about what he may have written. Nobody knows. Nobody needs to know. They would have told us if they did. He was just being gracious to them to let them have a reflective moment. And it says that 
They began to leave, starting with the oldest, until everyone left. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I know I need grace. The more I know that I am a weak, wretched, poor, miserable soul without Jesus Christ. Jesus, after they had all left, Jesus stood up again. It was just he and the adulterous woman. And he looked at her and he says, you know, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? Is there no one left to condemn you? And she said, no, Lord, no one. And Jesus, full of grace and truth, looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. But full of grace, which is what we all need, full of grace, and full of truth, he went on to say, now go and live your life. But leave your life of sin. Truth, full of... Do you think she heard him? Do you think she left motivated to change her life and to figure it out? Absolutely. I might have added, if it had been me, you might ought to stop by the counseling center and let one of our counselors walk you through this time in your life because your consequences are going to be pretty hard to get over even if you are forgiven. But Jesus, full of grace and truth, did what He does best. He lives out who God is and wants to be for us in the flesh in the flesh. Susan and I had been with the church for over 15 years in Little Rock, youth minister, 12 years in Brazil as a, as a missionary, and then came back to be their senior pe pastor, preacher, minister. And uh, after a couple of years of that, we decided that probably we weren't a good match and we probably ought to go different ways in ministry, loved each other like I mean, they loved me, no doubt about it. I loved them, no doubt about it. We were sitting with a man who had grown churches like I had envisioned us becoming. We were a good church, a big church. They wanted to take it to the next level. It didn't work. So I was talking. We were having pie, cherry pie at Shawnee's in affluent West Little Rock. Doug looked at Susan and I and said, Boy, what are you going to do? It's the same question my daughter, who was 12, asked me when we told them that we were moving again. And she got in my lap and curled up in a fetal position and said, Daddy, is there anything else you can do besides preach? I don't think I can take moving again. And to Doug, I said, when he asked me the same question, is, what are you going to do, Coy? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do to put food on the table to take care of my family. I'm going to trust the Lord. But I do know this, that I cannot stop telling people about the Jesus who has made me who I am. I cannot. 
He is my motivator. He is my example. He is my model. He is my everything. He's my doctrine. He's my interpreter. He is everything to me about life that I have discovered. That Jesus who is full of grace and truth also humbly serves. He just flat out humbly serves. The last night that he had with his disciples before the chaos of the crucifixion started in John chapter 13. If you want to turn over there, you know the story. You know what happened. He wanted to show them the full extent of his love. He wasn't thinking about his suffering. He wasn't thinking about other things that were about to occur. He wanted to show them the full extent of his love. So he girded himself and took a towel. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. And when he got to Peter, Peter didn't want him to be human. And wouldn't let him. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Jesus reminded them, I have done these things so that you will wash one another's feet and so that you will serve others and others and others. That's what being full of grace and truth is about. It's about serving. It's about doing the minimal, it's the minimal task. It's about doing whatever there needs to be done. Full of grace and truth. Can there be truth without grace? Can it even have an effect without grace, without it being for the purpose that God intended for it to be, to make us into better human being? Not so we could get to heaven, but so we could thank Him for guaranteeing us a heaven. There's an author a Brazilian psychiatrist in Brazil that I ran into this summer, his writings anyway, Dr. Augusto Curry found God when he found the humanity of Jesus. In fact, he wrote a book entitled Think and Make It Happen, the breakthrough program for conquering anxiety, overcoming negative thoughts, and discovering your true potential. He says in the beginning of that book that is in English, whether you're creating a new building, a new car, or a new life, every new development needs a model to go by. Likewise, we need a model in the psychological world by which to measure our own development toward maturity. I once did a study of a number of history's greatest men, Moses, Buddha, Mohammed, Confucius, Socrates, Plato, Freud, Einstein, and Jesus of Nazareth. In the end, I was so taken by Jesus' psychological health that it jarred me out of skepticism about him. I was one of the best atheists on this earth. I was surprised, perplexed, shocked by what I found. I came to understand that it is impossible for human intellect to make up such a person as Jesus was with his characteristics. For never had anyone led others so well as a result of first leading himself. He was a nonconformist in the best sense of the word, refusing to adopt the fears and neuroses of the world in which he lived. It is my professional psychiatric opinion that no person has modeled the kind of rich life we need better than him. 
Unfortunately, history has focused almost exclusively on Jesus' divinity to the exclusion of his humanity. However, from my scientific standpoint, Jesus the man had a spectacular ability to think correctly. His creativity was remarkable. His capacity to manage his thoughts in the face of tension was wonderful. And his ability to protect his emotions was unprecedented. He had every reason to be sad, depressed, and anxious, but he was happy, tranquil, secure. And his model as a human being is something else. From a psychological, psychiatric, philosophical, and pedagogical context. That Jesus, that human Jesus, that Jesus became flesh and was able to live out a life full of grace and truth changed an atheist from a believer in a, only a God, only a superior being, can make someone like Jesus. And after 20 years of practice and developing theory after theory about psychological health, he chose Jesus as his model. And every principle in his book is illustrated by the life of Jesus. Intriguing. Jesus really did come. He really did live among us. He really did show us how to live. He didn't just save us, and thank goodness for that. He really didn't just give us the church, and thank goodness for that. But He really showed us how to live. And in John chapter 3, Nicodemus saw in Jesus somebody that he wanted to get to know, and he went to him at night for fear of what people might think, probably. And he says, you must be from God. No one could teach, no one can do what you do unless God is with them. And Jesus just simply said to Nicodemus, unless you be born again, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. How can one be born when they're old, Nicodemus said. That's really a good question. But the answer is powerful. The answer is, if you can see Jesus, and you can let the wind blow where it wants to, and it lands in your heart, and the Spirit convicts you of a need for something bigger than yourself, it convicts you that you need a better way of living than you've been living. Then you can be born again. And you can be born of the water and the Spirit. Several of us got to hear Mosab Hussein Yosef at the International Conference on Missions. Born the oldest son of the founder of a terrorist group in Palestine. He wrote a book called The Son of Hamas, a gripping account of terror, betrayal, political intrigue, and unthinkable choices. By the time he was 21, he was already aged with hatred and prejudice, killing and trying to be killed, prison and release. Somebody stopped him. He says in his book, while he was passing by, walking past the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem, 
Someone not knowing who he was invited him to a Bible study. Do you find it intriguing like I do that he was walking past the Damascus gate? He tells that he only went to arm himself against Christians. He had never seen a Bible. Someone at the Bible study gave him a New Testament. And he says he went home and he started reading it to prepare himself against the Christians. And when he got to the Sermon on the Mount, I thought, wow, this guy Jesus is really impressive. Everything he says is beautiful. Every verse seemed to touch a deep wound in my life. Then I read this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He then said, I was thunderstruck by these words. For years I had struggled to know who my enemy was. And I had looked for enemies outside of Islam and Palestine. But I suddenly realized that the Israelis were not my enemies. Neither was Hamas, nor my uncle, one of the terrorists, one of the torturers in prison, nor the kid who beat me with the butt of an M16. I understood that enemies were not defined by nationality, religion, or color. I understood that we all share the same common enemies. Greed. Pride. And all the bad ideas and the darkness of the devil that live inside of us. And then he said, Overwhelmed, I started to cry. A man who had been taught not to cry, but to hate. The man Jesus brought him to tears. Read the story of Hamas. Eventually he was baptized six years later and deported from the occupied territory to the United States eight years later. But it was the man, Jesus, that he did not believe in, that set him free. Jesus came to change the world. He came to change people from Brazil to Palestine. He came to change those caught in adultery to the nailed of the world. He came to change the Nicodemuses. He came to change the Dr. Curies. He came to change the religious right, the religious left. He came to change you. He came to change me. Not just to save me, though I'm so thankful for that. On thy kind arms I fall. But he came to change me, the way I live, so that I could participate with Him in changing the world. And all anyone has to do is exercise their God-given right 
Their God-given right. It comes from Him when we believe. Their God-given right to become sons of God. To become His children. We as human beings, we've been put in the world just like Jesus. Just like the man Jesus was put in the world to change it. We have been sent out into the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We're in the world. We get frustrated with the world. We get frustrated with ourselves because of our own weaknesses and our own temptations. But Jesus is working on us. Jesus is here within us. He's within this church. He's within our hearts to change us. To make us into His sons and daughters. If the Scriptures have touched you in any way today like they've touched the people that we've talked about, I pray that you'll not let that touch leave here in vain, not having done something about it. 